The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another installment of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that I have certainly found most fascinating in doing this show over the years and one of the topics that we have also paid a fair amount of attention to is reconstructions of everyday life in populations that archaeologists study in other words not necessarily a focus on kingships on royalty on grand monuments but simply recovering information on how people lived on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I'm pleased to say that on this program, we will be discussing that issue along with one of the more sexy topics, I think, in archaeology and one of the ones that has captivated the attention of people for a really long time, and that is the entire question of the Vikings. Uh, In North America here, we have been inundated in the past 15, 20 years over the uh, settlement of North America and the fact that uh, the Norse and the Vikings have actually made it to the northern reaches of our continent. And uh, it has been an inspirational series of discussions and, and one that has generated a lot of interest, not only from the professional community, but also from the public. So without further ado, I want to introduce my, my guest. Uh, it is Dr. Stephen Ashby, who is a senior lecturer in the Department of Archaeology at the University of York in the United Kingdom. He is a specialist in the archaeology of everyday life, craft, and trade in Viking area Britain and Scandinavia. And his research projects currently include applications of genetic and biological analysis to bone objects, chemical analyses of pottery, and the food cultures, and systematic uh, assessments, actually, and syntheses of metal-detected data from the coasts of the North Sea. He works regularly with the media and uh, has most recently been featured in Real Vikings, which is a documentary tie-in with the History Channel's popular Viking drama. Uh, Dr. Ashby, it's a pleasure to welcome you. Thank you for being here. Hello, Joe. Nice to meet you. So tell us how you got interested in archaeology general, 
generally, and also how your interests gravitated towards the Vikings and the Norse. Okay, so there's, there's probably a few ways of answering that. Um, I, I had an interest in archaeology from when I was very, very young, and I think probably I was just one of these people who didn't go out of it. Um, so I went through, when I was sort of in my, uh, my sort of early teens, I always wanted to be an archaeologist, I think. And at some point, that stopped being a realistic concern, and I started to gravitate towards other things. Um, and so I actually went on to university to do geology. And I worked as a, as a civil engineer and a geologist for, for three or four years. Uh, but then I realized that I always really kind of wanted to get back into archaeology again. Um, so I, I left that, that sort of uh, early start to a profession and, and went back to university to study um, uh, the archaeology of animal bones, zoo archaeology. I did that up, up here at York. And, uh, and I loved it. Um, and so I found a way to, ke- to keep doing that. And the way that I got, uh, got into that was I found a topic that interested me that was about, uh, about the Vikings. And that seemed like it was a complete, um, uh, just a coincidence. I just found a particular topic within uh, the Viking studies area that, that kind of caught my attention. So I, I, I managed to, I was lucky enough to get funding to do a PhD to do that. But I thought the Vikings choice was purely coincidence. So there wasn't really anything in it uh, until about sort of 10 years ago, I bumped into an old school friend from... Um, uh, from a primary school, who, who told me that, um, oh, do you remember when we were you know, when we were seven or eight and we were, we were we were obsessed with the Vikings? We loved Vikings, didn't we? And I said, no, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> um, but it turns out that was completely true. And he, he'd um, he'd basically he's a car mechanic now, but he'd he, he'd um, continued in that in that obsession himself, but had uh, basically covered himself in Viking kind of style tattoos. Life has gone a slightly different direction, but just maintain that kind of uh, that interest in Vikings. We both found ourselves back in the same the same area of interest, but by different different directions. So I think Vikings is always kind of calling to me from some in some uh, some way. Um, I just got away from it, and it gradually pulled me back. It's a very interesting background. Oh, what is of interest to me, of course, is since I look at at uh, I'm a geomorphologist, geoarchaeologist. Oh, have yeah. you been able to um, establish a connection, and have you seen the bridge between your interests in the the two fields? Because they they clearly do coincide, and yeah. obviously. Yeah, you're doing, obviously, relating to cold climate environments, the type of adaptations yeah. that are involved. What about that connection? Yeah, well, so the, the, the connections are kind of, kind of appear and disappear, actually. I mean, one of the things that, that is difficult for a lot of people when they first get into archaeology is, they, is, they, is if they don't come from that background, um, then they don't really understand the principles of stratigraphy and, and how time relates to sort of um, a deposition and those kind of things. And it takes a while to learn that. And that was all already there, having sort of seven years of geolo- geological training. I already knew all that. So that was, that was nice. Uh, but that said, I never really found myself in, in the particular sort of geoarchaeological areas of research. Um, uh, I don't really know why. I just, I just kind of moved in different directions. Um, but there are a couple of areas where it did help me. I mean, one was that I found myself working quite a lot on, on animal bone. And so my background in paleontology helped quite a lot with that. Um, of course. Understanding how a, a, an unfamiliar bone might have, um, uh, uh, might have been used, what it might tell you about how the animal might have, might have operated. That's quite a kind of a, a useful skill to have if you're working with very fragmentary bone collections. Um, so that was one area. Um, and then I suppose another area I'm just starting to get back into now is that I'm working a bit on pottery. And I don't mm-hmm. really have any formal background training in pottery, but I do have five or six years of, of um, experience of working with um, 
petrological microscopes, and so so looking at looking at uh, a thin sections of rocks under a microscope, and so looking at sections of pottery is not that different in in many ways. Um, and then yes, thematically, the questions of um, climate change and um, uh, um, local versus local, local environment versus sort of global climate. Um, how that impacts on on human culture and human society is a very kind of common and important theme in in archaeology at the moment. So having a geological background and a sense of time depth um, is very important for that as well. That is true, and I guess uh, that leads me into my next question, which is, uh, and and I want to capitalize on this as as we move along, Um, give us some kind of a background. A few people have asked me these questions, and I'm not entirely sure I can answer them. Where do the Vikings come into the picture chronologically how do what what are our earliest indications of a viking or a precursor to a viking culture okay so the reason probably you can't give a very easy answer to this is a difficult question because actually um what um what we mean by vikings depends on who you ask really uh-huh. um, both in the past and in the present tense so it's originally used uh, the term Viking originally is used in a sort of old, old English documents where it's used to mean sort of pirates, really, quite a restricted meaning. Uh, and that's sometime in the 8th century AD, 8th, 8th century CE. Um, and it's, it, it's never used very commonly during that period, though. We, we, hear, we see more often, we see reference to things like Norsemen and um, uh, or Dane or, um, or just foreigners sometimes, things like that, mm-hmm, pagans right. and heathens. So it's quite um, unclear, really, what we're talking about. And then, um, as, as a kind of contemporary culture, the way we've taken taken on the idea of Vikings, uh, we use it as a kind of a, a sort of general, sort of global term, really, for meaning people from Scandinavia in this period, between about the uh, the very late eighth century through to the, um, the sort of the middle um, uh, of the eleventh century. So that's the period mm-hmm. we're talking about. It's about the turn, around a couple of centuries, around about the turn of the first millennium CE, and that is um, uh, that's fairly unproblematic. What what is more problematic is exactly whether that, whether Vikings is a, a a useful term, and also where we draw the where we draw the boundaries to that that period um, at the later end of the spectrum. Um, from a, a British perspective, if we're talking about the time when Scandinavia has an impact on on England then their main period of impact goes up till that point, till the sort of middle of the 11th century. But there's a continuing influence long after that, and in certain parts of the British Isles there's still Scandinavian settlements. Um, so there really isn't, in many, many ways, there isn't really a proper end to the Viking Age, it just kind of fizzles out. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, um, the, the, the start date of the Viking Age has generally been taken to be um, 793, 793 uh, AD, which is the, um, the date the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records for the, uh, the first raid on a, a monastery around the British Isles, the raid on a monastery of Lindisfarne in Northumbria. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there are all sorts of problems with that. It's the first recorded raid. Um, where, in all likelihood, not everything has been recorded. Um, and then also is the question is whether there is contact between Scandinavia and the British Isles before that. Um, is there a long period of sort of, of peaceful trade that somehow turns nasty? Um, or do these Vikings kind of appear from nowhere on the horizon as, as the, the documentary text kind of implies that they do? Um, so one of the long questions that archaeologists have been dealing with for quite a long time now is 
quite what the start of Viking Age looks like. Is there a very right. long, slow period? And, uh, and we can maybe push it right back into the sort of early 8th century at some point. Um, or is it is really this kind of chronological period, 793 to 1050 or 1066? Is that really a, a, the, the, it, that sort of monolithic kind of block? Maybe that is how we should be looking at it. Maybe it is a kind of a, a, a real political phenomenon. And people will argue about that back and forth. Um, that's basically the period we're talking about, around about the about eighty thousand, the idea around. But, but this, this is really a major question because people like to have very, very concrete ideas about Absolutely. what archaeology is yeah. and what the timelines are, and that that leads me to another question, which is specifically the media has for many, many years. Uh, been obsessed with Vikings. I mean, yeah. there have been movies about the Vikings uh, since the black and white days and the black and white filming days. And uh, we can say whatever we want, but that is the sort of impetus that promotes some archaeological investigation and certainly gets the public aroused. Yeah. So my question to you on that is, I think many of us just get locked into this idea that the Vikings are directly and exclusively associated with Scandinavia. Whereas, in fact, the migration of the Vikings and their association certainly with your part of the world, as well as my part of the world, is something that is very, very important and has recently gotten a lot more attention. And before we get into the, uh, the real meat of this discussion, which I, 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 I personally am inclined to talk about is the everyday life, is how does that how did how did those particular realities or even myths turning to realities evolve? I mean, again, you know, we're fixed on the Vikings being Scandinavians, end of story. And then obviously it's the migrations that are they're the key issues. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the myth versus the reality on that question? Yeah, sure. So that's, I mean, it's, it's a good point. I mean, obviously, the idea of, a, of some element of Scandinavianness is, if that's a word, is fundamental to understanding uh, what, what a Viking is. Um, if we're not talking about Scandinavian culture in any way, then we're not talking about Vikings. Um, but because this is a community which is uh, one of its key characteristics, really, is its mobility, that, that aristocrats and people of, of uh, lower standing seem to travel quite a lot, uh, both for everything from, from trade to warfare through to, through to um, permanent settlement, um, it, they come into contact with different people. And every time that a, a, a one, one con community comes in contact with another one, social change happens in some sense, and identity. Of course, and and that makes it difficult to track down Vikings and what we what we're really talking about. So actually, if you talk to a lot of academics, um, you won't see them in sort of f their formal writing refer to Vikings very often, unless they're talking in the very strict sense of talking about those early pirates, these these coast coastal raiders, because it, mm -hmm. it, it becomes unclear who we're talking about. If you say um, if a Viking is a Scandinavian raider, then does that include the, the, the Scandinavians who made up much larger armies of the, of the sort of the uh, later 9th and 10th centuries? Um, and does it include the people who were in those armies who probably weren't even Scandinavian, but who were part of that, that wider force? And then what happens if a Scandinavian uh, soldier or Scandinavian raider settles down and becomes a local landowner, which we know is what happens in England? Um, mm -hmm. And they, they very frequently uh, uh, become part of that sort of local culture. They become politically important in the, that local area. And they stop raiding in the same way that they were previously. So they still are Viking then. And then if they, if they intermarry with, with uh, um, uh, women from the, from the uh, local area, let's say they uh, 
they, they, they marry a, uh, an Anglo-Saxon woman and they have, they have children who may or may not speak Old Norse. Are those children Viking? I mean, it becomes very difficult, really, to, to, to work out exactly who, who and what we're talking about. Um, so one thing you'll, you'll hear that archaeologists do quite a lot, particularly in, in, um, in the British Isles, is we talk about the Viking Age. And so we'll say things like Viking Age England or Viking, uh, Viking Age people, um, rather than particularly talking about Vikings. Because in all, uh, uh, 99% of the time, when we're finding artifacts, we're not finding an actual person. We're finding the things that they've dealt with. Um, mm-hmm. So actually pinning down whether that person is of Scandinavian or Anglo-Saxon genetics or heritage or culture is quite difficult. All we can say is they were a person who lived in this particular sort of cultural world. Right. And uh, that, I, I think, is really one of the major issues that uh, we need to t- discuss because the public is, is sort of obsessed with um, the, the actual romantic image of the Vikings as raiders. And yeah. I think that's a very, very, very major issue that um, gets sort of transfixed in people's minds. And I want to develop that idea a little bit more. We're going to have to take a break for a minute, but we'll be right back with our very special guest, uh, Dr. Steve Ashby from uh, the Department of Archaeology at the University of York. And we will continue our fascinating discussion on the Vikings and their position in society and in culture right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. 
This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we are talking to our special guest today on Indiana Jones, a Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology about uh, the Vikings. And as many of you know who follow this show, we have had a number of discussions and uh, programs on this topic generally. We've talked about migrations, we've talked about populations, and we have talked also about the chronology of the Vikings' occupations in Scandinavia and moving westward into the UK and ultimately in, into North America as well. But what one of the topics we have not discussed and, and a topic that uh, my guest, Dr. Ashby, is an expert on is everyday life. And as many of you know, uh, anthropological archaeology is certainly very concerned with life ways, life styles, and how people actually have lived. And as, as a way of introducing this, uh, Steve, let me uh, not want to blindside you on, on this, but a lot of people have obsessed about that the program on the History Channel on the Vikings, and I imagine you have something to do with that. How accurately does that depict the uh, everyday elements of, of the life ways? I mean, the raiders, the raids are also important, but in the History Channel program, we are getting glimpses on how people lived, what their campsites looked like, how they, uh, how they uh, interacted to some degree. Can you give us a little bit of, of your perspectives on the depictions of that on these TV shows and what they are in real, in real life? Sure, yeah, I mean, we could talk about that all day, really. I think um, one of the things, actually, I quite like about the, that, the, uh, the History Channel program is that it does try, it really tries really hard to integrate that element of, of sort of everyday life. Um, that it's very, it would be very easy to make a, a TV program about, about the Vikings, which focus entirely on raiding and warfare. Um, but to actually kind of bring family life and, um, and sort of political life and farm life into, uh, in, into kind of uh, focus is much more difficult. Um, one of the things that has been happening in Europe a bit over the last kind of 20, 30 years is we have been thinking a bit more about that. And if you go to look at most of the museums about the, the, the sort of Viking Age around Britain and Europe, you'll tend to find there is a lot of focus on, on everyday life. Uh, but there can be sometimes a bit of a dichotomy that we tend to think... Um, uh, the traditional view of the Vikings was very warlike and, and savage, and these were huge barbarians. Um, and then we swung in the opposite direction and started to think about them as, as sort of almost like um, sort of pseudo-capitalist, proto-capitalist sort of entrepreneurs and right. uh, and, and, and merchants and and uh, uh, and uh, almost as if like going walk, walking down Viking um, Viking York would have been just like going down the shopping street of of uh, 21st century York. And of course, it's not. Um, um, and the, all those things are happening together. Um, so we have a society which is made up of, 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 of um, uh, warriors and soldiers and, uh, and um, uh, chieftains and magicians and all these kind of things and people who are, who are doing crafts and, and people who are farmers um, and also people who are all of these things. There are, there are, there are people who who's, we can tell from the, the texts that are written about this period that that. that People have more than one identity. That they'll they'll farm or landown for part of the year, and they go off and they raid in the, in the summer. So, it is a very complicated world. And I think what what the those Viking programs do really well is an attempt to try to to kind of um, sort of invite you into that world and, and show what 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 a kind of strange and in many ways sort of unfamiliar place the Viking Age would have been. Um, we can argue all day about the the uh, ins and outs of the 
uh, of the uh, the set design and the and the uh, the brooches and the clothes that people wear and that sort of thing. And it was some of that they do very well, and some of it isn't isn't done so well. Um, but I think the overall kind of um, uh, ethic that they're trying to put across, the, 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 the overall kind of idea of what the Viking Age was was like, is quite an quite admirable and quite an unusual thing to do for a sort of primetime drama, really. And, and I think one of the interesting elements of that is that it has captivated people's attention, and mm. they do really place a focus on uh, everyday life. I mean, how people interact. Uh, there's those usual soap opera type uh, interactions between, yeah. I suppose, clannish elements, and 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 the tribal organization sort of gets thrust out into the open. And I think one of the topics that gets carried over uh, pretty significantly is they, as far as I can see, they staged it as this is life in between raids. In sure. some cases, there's always some central portion that's associated with uh, let's bite our time until the next raid comes through. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the daily life and, and what, we, what we know and, and what we're led to believe, say, on this show and, and, and in other media. What was it like? Sure. So um, it would have been quite quite variable for a, for a start, um, depending on who you were. Obviously, the, li- the life of a of a uh, uh, the, the leader of a, uh, uh, a local area, a local king, um, versus a um, um, a slave, for instance, is going to be very very different. Um, I think what we can say is that the, the sort of commonalities of experience across all those those different sort of status groups is that uh, life would be quite unstable. And, and would have felt quite dangerous. I mean, you, you get used to the world you're living in, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that, that program does, does quite well is that it, it, uh, it introduces sudden shocks. You know, there'll be, there'll be a sudden... Uh, um, there's an outbreak of disease in one episode, I think, and then the, the people, will, um, uh, people will die for, for apparently no reason. And then you see the, um, uh, the, the kind of local society trying to, to work out why that might, might be and create sort of... Um, explanations for what would happen and that's all very realistic i think um so what we get is a kind of a, a life which is based i think on on the landscape and the world around you and the kind of the uh the seasonal round um much like sort of earlier societies the sort of prehistoric societies that the the kind of the comings and goings of the seasons the growing season uh the uh ability to sail in certain conditions would have been very very uh, important and so um, those, those kind of very natural elements of the world would, would have been very important to you. And I think that comes across as well in what we know about Norse religion and, and worldview, um, that, that sort of Viking uh, religion is, is not religion in the sense we think about it today. It's, it's, a, it's a way of understanding everything about the world um, that is never turned off. And that's not a way certainly in Europe that, that a lot of people kind of think about modern Christianity, for instance. That it becomes so... Um, uh, everything becomes invest, invested in sort of the uh, ideas of Norse religion that you can't uh, really ever get away from it. So um, we can see this because the, the uh, parts of the landscape are, are seem to be inhabited by spirits or by, by trolls and giants and those sorts of things. Right. And everything is a way of understanding the, the landscape around you and trying to find an explanation for otherwise inexplicable things that happen. Um, uh, everything from from uh, from famines to to disease and that sort of thing. Um, one of one of the, the the great stories is the idea of the Fimbul winter, the, the, the great winter which comes at the uh, the end of the world before Ragnarok. Um, and this is kind of uh, some people have suggested that this is 
a, a kind of folk memory of a terrible, terrible um, uh, cold year with, with no summer, basically, um, which the crops didn't, didn't grow. And there is some, some archaeological and environmental evidence for that. Um, so it does seem that you know, if we try to think about ways in which society was different in the past to how it is now, that that sort of instability would have been an important one. Um, and then the other thing is that it was very much a, a, um, a society which, which was um, based on, 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 on structure, that there were, there, were, there were haves and there were have-nots. There, were, um, there was great wealth and there was great poverty. And um, one of the things which I think, I think makes uh, Viking Age society quite uh, distinctive is that 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 hierarchy is clear and it's there and it's well understood, but it's, it's not inflexible and it's not unbreakable. Um, so people at the bottom of the, of, of the sort of social tree um, are, are kind of kind of stuck where they are to a certain extent. Uh, but if you are kind of a, a reasonably important uh, um, sort of a, a local magnate or warrior or something, um, by behaving in a kind of politically intelligent way, um, by by winning battles over the right people, by making people important people indebted to you, you can actually climb the ladder quite quickly, um, and that creates a system where again of, of kind of instability that people who are at the top aren't at the top for very long, uh, and people further down um, are always eyeing the people above them, and that creates a situation where um, uh, leaders are, are fully aware of their responsibility to the people below them. To, to make sure that they have successful raids, that they, that they have, a, um, have an economically successful uh, uh, settlement, that people are, uh, are, are able to feel like they, um, they're living in the right place, that they're the people uh, who, who are overseeing them know what they're doing. Um, because otherwise, um, things change very quickly, much like the sort of Wild West, I suppose, is that, that kind of analogy. Um, right. So all those things come together to create, create quite a sort of a, uh, a very sort of distinctive world, I think. So you're saying that to some degree a meritocracy was a possibility that uh, even though there was a fundamental stratification in terms of the social order, it was possible to advance and to move on to the next level if you prove yourself by your deeds. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, and so, so one, of, one of the ways you, you might do that is by building up a, a following and increasing your following of, of, uh, uh, of people who are sort of indebted to you, um, but you go off on a raid and you, you have a very successful raid, you bring back significant uh, uh, quantities of gold or sil silver or slaves or whatever you're bringing back um, mm -hmm. to, um, to reward the people who are with you um, and to encourage more of that. Um, and so it, success breeds success in many ways, uh, and that, that kind of uh, encourages kind of... Um, a very sort of mutable sort of social structure. What about the social structure itself? Did was there a clan-based organization? Was there a clan leader for every group? And how did the clans interact? And how was there uh, the nature of their stability as as time moved along? Sure. So we we don't know very much about that to be honest, and, and a lot of it comes from anthropology. So we'll take a lot from a sort of uh, ethnographic analogy, really. Largely because uh, Scandinavia, at the, at the start of the Viking Age, at least, is 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 not recording um, in in written form what's going on there. So what we know about it are references from um, from places like Anglo-Saxon England and and continental Europe 
where people visit and see what's going on. And, and obviously, they're, they're looking at, at it from a different perspective. Um, but what, we, what we can see is it probably is a, a, a society of um, uh, chiefdoms is probably the best way of thinking about it, um, with, with local chieftains who might well be known as kings, um, but don't, they're certainly not kings in the sense of the sort of monarchs we think of for the, the later medieval period. Um, but over the course of the Viking Age, this changes quite a lot. And, and one of the reasons the Viking Age is so difficult to talk about, actually, is because it is a period of change. And if you, if you try to define the things which characterize the Viking Age, the things that, that characterize it are things that change. We see change in religion. We see change in mm-hmm. economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see changing uh, settlement patterns. We definitely see changing politics. So at the start of the Viking Age in Scandinavia, we're talking about local chieftains. By the end of the Viking Age, we're talking about things which are approaching the sort of nation-states of Sweden, Denmark, and Norway. Um, so you've got all of that happening, that change happening through the Viking Age, really. And, and looking at what's happening in the 8th century is very different to what's happening in the sort of uh, mid to late 11th century. Just out of curiosity, uh, do a lot of people in the major Scandinavian nations, uh, Norway's, Sweden, Denmark, possibly Finland, are they able to trace their origins or roots to the Vikings? I think lots of people would claim to be able to. How many could, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, be able to, like to say. Certainly members of, of, of the royal family in Denmark um, make, make those, those connections. Um, um, so th- th- there is that. I mean, on a, on a broader sort of cultural level, there is a sense in which um, Scandinavian contemporary society uh, traces itself back to the Viking Age in a way that we don't in England, let's say. So we, we, we think in, in England, we tend to think of the Scandinavians as, as outsiders. The Viking Age was a sort of blip which happened and then it went away again. And that's a complete, uh, that's a fabrication that we've made up to make ourselves uh, create our kind of, our, our kind of uh, origin myth, really. Uh, but in, in Scandinavia, it's very clear that this is a period in which the, um, uh, uh, chiefdoms coalesce into, into kingdoms and turn into... into uh, large important political entities that come to be recognized later on um it's a period in which um the the uh, the danes in particular go from being seen by people on the continent as um you know warring factions almost kind of non-human in some senses you know they're, they're very mythologized uh, groups of people to becoming seen as you know important players on the on the you know, european political stage Oh, so it's definitely, it's definitely a period in which people try to, they look back to that period as, a, as a, a, an idea of ancestry, certainly. But certainly with the advances in DNA tracking, mm. um, I'm assuming that there are more than few people in the Scandinavian heartland that have tried to match their DNA up with uh, surviving bones or uh, genetic material. Is that not true? There's certainly people are trying to do that, yeah. Um, I mean, the, one of the, the issues with, with uh, these kind of genetic studies is that um, because, of the, because of the way that the ancestry works, that um, anyone who's got the, who's, whose family is in, in the same place for long enough will be able to tie themselves back to something, really. So it, becomes, it becomes a little bit, uh, a bit circular, really. But I think um, there is more and more of that work going on. I mean, one of the things that you might have seen over the last few years is that there's been a, uh, a real kind of focus in the popular press for um, this interest in, in kings. If you find a king somewhere, you, you, you dig him up and, and check out his, his genetics and see who he's related to. Um, and that's something that's been happening more and more. And it's, to me, it's not really very intellectually interesting, but it's, no. uh, 
uh, it, I mean, it, it, I guess it does express the, the public's interest in that in that kind of that use of use of genetics, really. And we will be back very shortly with our very special guest, Dr. Steve Ashby, from the Department of Archaeology at the University of York. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest is Dr. Steve Ashby senior lecturer in the Department of Archaeology at the University of York, who is a specialist on Norse culture, Viking archaeology, and matters related to, to that. And uh, one of the topics that I think uh, a lot of the listeners would like to know about is day-to-day life, and that is uh, certainly one of your areas of expertise. Uh, we've been talking about, over the break, we were talking about cooking, diet, and the nature of the uh, the uh, Viking lifeways in terms of subsistence. Can you tell us a little bit about what we know about diet and survival and how people sustain themselves in the cold climate, uh, looking at it from the Viking perspective and what the archaeology tells us? Okay, yes, that's something I've been working on quite recently, actually, that we have, um, being in York, um, one of the, the great advantages of, of being here is that we have access to all the work that's been done in the Viking city of York. Um, and York was one of the places where the, 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 the kind of, um, the, the idea of environmental archaeology, the un- understanding of um, animal bone remains, plant remains, um, um, the structure of soils, all those kind of things. And they were first really trialed in an urban perspective in York. 
So we've got probably 30 or 40 years of experience of working with, with animal bones and plant remains and things in this, in, in, in this part of the world. Um, and those kind of ideas have been picked up and, and copied around, around the British Isles and, and, in, and also into um, in Scandinavia as well. Um, and as a result of that, we've got quite a good understanding of, of the kind of things that people were eating. So we know that they were eating uh, pork and beef. We know they were eating fish. We knew, know that they were eating particular sorts of, sort of grain crop. Um, uh, we know from, from uh, even from the, from the remains of human feces that we can identify precisely what kinds of grains were going to particular meals. And, and uh, we know about the stomach contents. All this kind of stuff that goes together that over a... Um, uh, a long period of time, if we build up a synthesis, we can start to understand what the components of diet were. And then we can look at the, um, the actual uh, human remains, and we can, do, we can do isotopic studies to try to work out uh, how much of a, a particular individual's diet was marine-based versus was terrestrial-based, that sort of thing. But all of that, um, to my mind, although it's very interesting, it, it's a little bit superficial, it basically tells us the components of people's diet. It doesn't actually tell us anything about how they were eating. Uh, it doesn't really give us anything really very cultural. Um, and it doesn't really tell us about uh, the, the material culture associated with it, the, um, uh, which is what a lot of archaeologists are interested in, is the, the materiality, the, the objects associated with it. Um, and one of the reasons that we do have trouble with that is that, um, to a large extent, in Places like York, a big sort of urban site, we don't tend to get discrete pits of uh, rubbish which we can associate with a particular house or building. So we can say, well, this is the, ha the house of a rich person and they were eating this kind of stuff in the way that we can for, say, you know, the, the colonial US. Um, so what we end up with is big masses of sort of aggregated data. So mm -hmm. What we've been working on just recently is to try to get to beyond that to a finer scale, almost to the sort of meal scale, uh, and try to work out um, what people were putting together to cook with. Uh, and the way we're doing that is looking at the pottery. Um, and um, one, obviously one of the, the most well-recorded sorts of objects you find in, a, uh, in medieval sites um, is pottery. You find it in enormous quantities. And uh, in many cases, since it was first identified and has been um, uh, used to date different phases of the site and uh, write the initial reports. A lot of this material has been sitting away in storage. So what we've been, we've been doing is getting this pottery out and looking at it again. Um, and what we've been working on is starting with the, the overall shape of a vessel. You can get a certain idea of how a particular pot was being used to cook. Um, if it's got a, a kind of a, a round bottom, Rather than a flat bottom, you can probably guess it would have been hung from something rather than sat on a on a grate. Um, if it's got a large uh, sort of opening at the top, um, so that you can stir it easily, um, that makes sense for kind of boiling something down quickly. But if you've got a um, uh, something with a, a narrower narrower opening on the top, then probably you're not going to be using it in quite the same way. Sometimes we can see around the rim of a pot, it's got a flat. Uh, uh, flattened top, which looks like it would seat a, a lid really well. So we can start to think about whether things are being simmered. And if we can combine that with the kind of the passioning we get on both the outside and the inside of the pot, uh, represented by, by sussing patterns, charring, uh, that can tell us where in, the where in the fire a pot has sat. It can tell us the kind of pot of cooking that's going on inside the pot. If you think about the, if you're cooking something that's got lo lots of liquid, liquid in it, like a, like a stew, um, 
the kind of burnt residue you end up stuck to the side is very different to something if you're, let's say, doing a, a roasting something or frying something in a pan. So we can put all that together, and that tells us how a pot is being used. And then we can put that together with uh, evidence about um, what's, uh, what was actually going into the pot. So in occasions where uh, food has been burnt onto the vessel, we can put that under a microscope and we can identify tiny plant remains in the, in the, uh, in, in the burnt crust. And that can tell us what kind of plant material went into there. And then we can actually drill into the pottery, even where, where there's no visible residue. The pottery is porous enough that any fats or plant waxes or, or whatever's been cooked in the pot that's there, it will soak into the pot and it stays locked within that pot for the next thousand years. Oh. And we can, then, we can then apply some clever chemical analysis to it and we can work out what, what, what went into it, uh, whether it's got things like, for instance, we can recognise beeswax, we can recognise plant waxes that relate to particular sorts of groups of, of plants like brassicas and leafy greens, and we can recognise uh, marine fats versus, versus uh, the fats from terrestrial animals like pigs and, uh, and uh, sheep and cattle. If we put all that together, we can get a sense of um, how different sorts of pots are being used. There's a whole range of pots that appear during, during the Viking Age. They, we go right. from basically, basically having a single sort of pot to an e- enormous range. And what we're trying to do is work out a different ones being used for different things. So you get a sense of the sort of cuisine, the way that people put meals together. So based on the analyses that you have done to date, can you give us some information, perhaps even surprising information, as to what the uh, common Viking diet might have been like, something that we would never have imagined or even something that we would have thought would have been part of it? Yeah. Yeah, well, some of, some of the things, this is quite, quite new, actually. We've still got most of our samples going, going through the lab right now, but, I mean, there are a couple of things which are quite surprising. Um, one is that we're not finding very much fish. Um, really? And, yes, and, and that is clearly not that they're not eating fish. Uh, there is so much evidence from the, from, the, uh, from the fish bones, from the presence of uh, fishing hooks and that sort of thing at sites. Of course, we, yeah. We know the Vikings were eating fish. We know they were exporting fish in in large quantities as, as dried fish products. Mm. Uh, but what this suggests is that they're not boiling it. Uh, we know that we, oh. would, we would find fish by this mechanism because we found it in, when we've done work on prehistoric pottery, fish is quite easy to find. Um, but the fact that it's, now, that it's not there suggests they're cooking it in a different way. They're either grilling it or they're, they're um, um, maybe they're just, they're just eating stockfish as this dried fish product, so kind of like a sort of fish jerky. Right. Um, they're just eating it like that. Um, and that's something which I think perhaps we might, we might have suspected, but no one's really actually said it out loud um, because we've never really looked properly in, on it, at any scale of what's going on in these pots. Um, one of the other things we found is um, some colleagues of mine did some work on eggshell. So we can do some work now, which is a sort of like a, a very sort of quick and dirty version of DNA, uh, which uses a different molecule. Um, right. so what, it, what it can do is it can identify species. No further than that, it can't do the kind of high-resolution stuff that DNA can do, like tracing ancestry or anything like that. But it can tell one species from another. And because it's so quick and so cheap, we can apply it to tiny fragments that otherwise you wouldn't have bothered with with a DNA. And so one of the, the things that has been tried on is eggshell. Um, so tiny fragments of eggshell that we found at uh, Viking sites. Um, previously, we would have thought was... Uh, uh, unidentifiable, now we can have a go at. And one of the things we expected to find was if we look at somewhere like York, we'll find lots of evidence for chicken. 
Uh, and if we looked at places like Orkney, where we know that from historic record people are are, um, are eating lots of um, eggs from seabirds, they're collecting wild seabird eggs. That's the sort of thing we expect to find. In, actu- in actuality, what we found was lots of chicken everywhere. So it really? seems like the, yeah, the idea of the idea of, a, of chicken as the, as a kind of staple of a, of cuisine is quite quite important. Um, so it's not quite so. Um, uh, fundamental to, to the diet at that point as it is now. It's a bit more high status, I think. It's a bit harder to get your hands on chickens. But even so, they're still getting their hands on them in, in the uh, settlements of, of Viking Orkney in, in northern Scotland. So those are just some, yeah. some little snippets that we're guessing. Um, but um, we're, we're, we're hoping what we'll find over the next few years is that, that um, we'll be able to see if different sorts of pots are being used in different ways. And if those different sorts of pots are being used in different ways in the same way at different sites, or if it's the same across different sites. We want to see if, if people are eating differently in the towns to in the countryside, or are they eating differently at a high-status site to a low-status site, or are people in the Scandinavian part of the country, the, the north and east, who we might think to be Vikings in inverted commas, uh, are they eating in the same way to people who live in the Saxon south? Of course, um, right. Um, and the thinking behind that is that um, archaeologists have been uh, obsessed with identity for the for, for all periods, but particularly for the Viking Age for the last sort of 10 or 15 years, 20 Absolutely. years. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, but we've tended to do it by looking at things like uh, dress accessories, the way people look, language, uh, architecture. Uh, when if you think about the modern day, that one of the key ways in which we kind of express who we are um, is actually um, how we cook and how we eat. It's, um, it's one of the things that that is the most easy to, to notice about migration, that people bring different types of cooking with them. Um, right. And it's also something which is quite, quite personal, I think, because the, the way that we um, express ourselves outwardly in terms, of, in terms of how we dress, that's a very different thing to what you do in your own house, around your own fireplace. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking that, that cooking could be a really important way of getting at sort of personal and social identity. Can we really identify sort of uh, different status groups or different ethnic groups even uh, in the Viking Age through, through this mechanism. But we've not been able to do it before because we've not had the resolution data because, the, uh, because we've just been looking at bones. But, but by putting all this together, hopefully we can get a bit, we can drill down a little bit further. So the hope is what about, I'm sorry, what about um, what you were talking about before? What do we know about clothes and grooming and uh, that sort of thing because we have this very fixed image again from the media from the movies and from the tv show that we've talked about i know you've done some work on on combs and grooming and and clothes what can you tell us about that yeah well i mean a lot of the work a lot of what we do know about about how viking people looked um, it's quite well evidenced now. A, a certain amount of it has to be sort of uh, speculative because we don't very yes. often find find the you know, textiles and that sort of thing. We do find a lot of metal fittings and the bone fittings, so brooches and, bu- and uh, belt buckles and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then we do have some textual references as well. Um, most of the textual references come from the Vikings in the east. So um, um, there's, a, there's an, uh, uh, an Arab scholar who writes a report um, of meeting meeting um, uh, a group called the Rus in um, in the Volga area, um, mm-hmm. and they are basically um, treated as very alien. They behave in a very different way to how, how he expects, and they're said to to have um, uh, 
uh, well, they behave in all sorts of different ways, but both that report and a couple of other reports suggest that they might be wearing some sort of makeup. They might even be, be tattooed. Um, um, so that we have those kind of things to look at. And obviously those have been drawn, drawn on in, the, uh, in the, what we see on the TV. Um, and one of the things I've been working on is hair. Uh, and obviously hair is not something which is very readily um, preserved in the archaeological record. Um, so it's something we have to speculate about a little bit. But one thing that you can tell from what we do find is that we find lots and lots of hair combs. Um, any big Viking excavation across northern Europe is going to come across combs. Um, and what we can tell is that these are very, uh, very ornate objects. They, they take a couple of days to make. They're made using specialist equipment by people with specialist skills and, uh, right. uh, and uh, specialist materials. Um, these are not everyday throwaway things. They're, o- they're often uh, very ornamented. They're often too big for their purpose in some cases. They're clearly symbolic in some way. And so I've been questioning why this would be. And the first, you know, the first answer to that is obviously that they care about their hair. They said they, they, yes, these are not obviously. people who are unkempt. They, they on some level have to care about their hair. Um, but you can also see a grading in the, in the types of combs that, that, that are there. There are some which are clearly very high-end and some which are not are quite such a high standard. Um, and to me, what that suggests is that hair is a sort of a field for demonstrating status. Um, and going back to you know, some of the classic anthropology, people like Mary Douglas, who talked for... Uh, uh, really sort of in, insightfully about the way in which um, cleanliness can be an indicator of, of, uh, of status. An easy, a, a very easy way to differentiate yourself as someone who has wealth from someone who doesn't is by, look at them, aren't they dirty? I'm much cleaner than that. Um, right. And I think that hair is a very obvious way of demonstrating that. Hair is probably, what the, of all the things on your body, is one of the easiest things to manipulate, to show that it's clean or dirty, to style it in different ways to indicate who you are. You might have a particular kind of a, uh, a, uh, a hairstyle which might be fashionable in a certain part of Scandinavia, which wouldn't be fashionable in England. Um, and so uh, because of all those things, I think combs become laden with a certain sort of social capital, become a, a kind of a symbol of caring about how you look. Um, and, I mean, there's all sorts of references to this outside the Scandinavian world as well, ac- across sort of contemporary Europe. There are, there are references in, in, uh, in uh, uh, continental Francia, so France and Germany. There, there, there are references to uh, laws about how you treat your hair and how you treat other people's hair. Um, there are references in the, in the Anglo-Saxon documents about um, uh, from certain Anglo-Saxon clerics who are complaining about the influence that Scandinavians are having on the uh, on good Christian people in England, and one of the things one that they complain about is that Anglo-Saxon people are, are copying the hair of the pagans. Um, so these things clearly matter, um, um, and I think that's that's quite an, an interesting thing you can get to from from archaeology. Really, that is by questioning. Hang on, why have we got so much of this stuff? You can start to get a little bit into the into the sort of psyche of the people in the past, really. And that's a topic for an entirely new and fascinating program, and we're going to have to unfortunately bring the show to a close. I want to thank my very special guest, Dr. Steve Ashby, for providing so many new insights on what we know about Viking civilization and lifeways. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. It was great fun. And until next week when we have another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, this is Joe Schildenrein bidding you a very happy and good evening. 
Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.